Well, who would have known that posting about Old Testament hermeneutics on X, the artist formerly known as Twitter, could cause such a stir? Old Testament hermeneutics, by most measures, is a very dry and boring subject that you just kind of leave to scholars to talk about and books that you'll skim through once in your life and then put on a shelf and never look at again, and that's kind of it. Uh, Though... I messed around and found out last week on X when I posted something about Old Testament hermeneutics, and uh, it received quite a bit of attention for me. Okay, I want to put that in uh, the right perspective there. This isn't like, I don't know, some celebrity. It's not like Taylor Swift tweeting something and getting attention and having it be a viral tweet. This is Jeremy Howard posting about Old Testament hermeneutics, and... uh, getting, I don't know, somewhere close to 30,000 views on the tweet, which, you know, for me is much more exposure than I normally get. Here's what I posted. Uh, If you're watching on video, it's going to be a better experience here for you. But I posted this graphic that I made on paint. I make a lot of graphics on paint. I think it's way better than Photoshop. Uh, Changed my mind. (laughs) And uh, it's about different approaches to understanding the Old Testament prophets. On the one hand, you have covenant theology. On the other hand, you have dispensationalism. My point in this graphic is to show how covenant theology differentiates between the divine author and the human author, and they are not always in line when they use the same words. With They're not in line with their intention. So, for instance, the Old Testament prophet saying there's a future for Israel, he's intending to mean there's a future for national Israel ethnic Israel, whereas from the covenant theology perspective, God had in mind the whole time that Israel is actually this changing thing. It used to be just a nation, but now it's this multi-ethnic, multinational organism that's also known as the church. Uh, That is also Israel. And so when the Old Testament prophets said Israel would be restored in their land and have peace and prosperity with their enemies and the neighboring nations— They had one thing in mind, but God actually had a different thing in mind, is in the covenant theology framework, you have those prophecies being fulfilled allegorically or spiritually today in the church. And so the whole point of breaking it out this way is to say, you know, on the one hand, at times, God was using secret definitions for words that were not revealed to the human author. His meaning is the only true meaning of the text from a covenantal perspective perspective. The human author, though, on the other side, they use those words with their norm, with their normative meanings. And so they would use the word Israel or the word land or the word, uh, you know, when they were talking about agricultural blessings, milk and honey and things like that, they would use those words with their normative meanings. But they were wrong in their intention because they did not have God's secret definitions of the words that corresponded to the spiritual fulfillment that would happen in the church age. And so uh, I think you know, this is, <laughs> I'm going to continue defending this. I think this is a very fair way of talking about this. Whereas on the other hand, dispensationalism, what sets dispensationalism apart, let me move this over just a tad here. What sets dispensationalism apart from covenant theology is dispensationalism says the divine author and the human author had the same intended meaning. 
their intended meaning with those words was completely shared. God revealed his message normatively in human language. The human author's meaning is always God's meaning. God's meaning is always the human author's meaning. There's a sharing there. Okay, so that was the point of this, uh, this graphic was to highlight those are two very different approaches to reading the Old Testament. And that's why dispensationalists believe there's a future for national Israel. So I post stuff like this on, I'll just call it Twitter, from time to time as a way of highlighting the dispensational convictions that I have and uh, explaining the difference between covenant theology and dispensationalism. It's uh, something I do perhaps as a gadfly. Uh, that's something that I could be called, I suppose, to just poke at my brothers who stand on the other side of a theological conviction and start a conversation on Twitter. I'm a glutton for punishment. What can I say? So I, I posted this graphic and it started getting attention that was mixed. Even if uh, you know you were looking at that, you could see the number of likes and the number of comments was pretty similar. Both are in the 50s. And some of the comments were positive, saying they appreciated it or they agreed with it. But there were many comments of covenant theologians who were disagreeing. And so I wanted to address some of these disagreements that they have and hopefully make this relatively quick. There were some covenant theologians who were pretty quick to pounce on this saying, that's not what we say. That's not what covenant theologians say. And uh, of course, I recognize this. I didn't quote any covenant theologian in my graphic. I was summarizing covenant theology's approach to the Old Testament in my own words. Uh, you'll, you'll never have a covenant theologian coming out and saying God uses secret definitions. You're not going to see a, uh, an Old Testament hermeneutics book come out of Westminster Seminary titled God's Secret Definitions. It's just not going to happen. However, um, I'm a gadfly, and that's how I summarized that, okay? And I will stand by it. But let me give you an example of uh, those who rush to the defense of covenant theology here. Let me see if I can adjust this a little better. Um, maybe move it that way a little bit. Yeah, there we go. So um, Gabriel Hughes, he is the one who runs the... Uh, the YouTube channel or the podcast, when we understand the text, well, what? W-W-U-T-T. And he comes out and says, the graphic on the left is totally wrong. The way that I'm describing covenant theology's approach to the Old Testament, he says, is totally wrong. And so I, uh, I did reply to him, but here in this thread, it's showing a guy named Duff who joins in. Duff usually gets in these conversations on Twitter, and he says, exactly. Just totally agrees with Gabriel Hughes. And I say, well, help me out, Duff. How is it wrong? And he says, you are the one that posted it, brother. Are you confident that it is an accurate representation of both sides? And I said, uh, yes. <laughs> that's, all, that's all I said. Gabriel Hughes comes back in and says, your podcast is called Do the Theology. Not really, but okay. Um, and he said, but you didn't do the theology? Question mark. Both covenant theologians and dispensationalists can claim to have a grammatical historical hermeneutic. If you're going to show the differences, this ain't it. This is just a straw man, Jeremy Howard's opinion. And I replied, this is it, though. Because, you know, here I am uh, wanting to find out where I'm off, according to these guys. And then he says, go on lying, then. That's between you and the Lord. 
So we're off to a great start. I mean, that, why should I? Why should I even try being a gadfly on Twitter? This isn't the place to have these conversations, right? Uh, it just never really works out. Though sometimes people do make progress, and I guess it's those times that keep us going back for more. But uh, here I am, before being corrected in any way, just being told I'm a liar. Well, I'm not a liar. I'm not. And let me uh, let me give you an example. All right, let me uh, show you here. This is from Michael Vlock's website, Mike mikevlock.blogspot.com. He's got a blog where he talks about theological things. He writes several books on dispensational theology. Michael Vlock, great dispensational author, scholar. You should buy all of his stuff. And here's a post from 12 and a half years ago where he's talking about how reinterpretation language is used by non-dispensationalists. And he says that sometimes he gets complaints for claiming that non-dispensationalists believe that the New Testament reinterprets the Old Testament. While I certainly acknowledge that some do not use that specific term, we must be honest and acknowledge that some have. Here's a sample of those who explicitly use reinterpret language. Now, I'm bringing this up to you, bringing this to your attention, because if the New Testament reinterprets the Old Testament, what does that mean? It means that God had intentions behind prophecies in the Old Testament that the original author was not privy to, that the original audience was not privy to, that later on, hundreds or thousands of years later, a later audience was now becoming privy to the intentions that God had all along, and therefore there's a reinterpretation going on. Originally, when the Old Testament prophecies were given, they were received using normative definitions for those normative words, and they were interpreting it that way. Later, there's a new definition, there's a new intention that's revealed, and they have to be reinterpreted. So reinterpretation language indicates exactly what I was indicating in the graphic, that God had hidden intentions in his words that the original prophet and the original audience did not understand. They weren't privy to it. But now, in this age, we are privy to it. But let's look at uh, a couple of these quotes. George Eldon Ladd, G.E. Ladd, he says, the Old Testament must be interpreted by the New Testament. So there you go. Reinterpretation language. In principle, it is quite possible that the prophecies addressed originally to literal Israel describing physical blessings have their fulfillment exclusively in the spiritual blessings enjoyed by the church. This is pure, total reinterpretation. What was originally understood as national blessings to a physical people, with these physical blessings to a physical people, is now to be interpreted as spiritual blessings to a spiritual people. Hidden definitions, hidden intentions before that are now revealed. Okay. He goes on to say, it is po also possible that the Old Testament expectations of a kingdom on earth could be reinterpreted by the New Testament altogether of blessings in the spiritual realm. Kim Riddlebarger is another one who's used this language. He says, eschatological themes are reinterpreted in the New Testament where we are told that these Old Testament images are types and shadows of the glorious realities that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So these Old Testament images, meaning he's talking about physical national Israel, their temple, their land, their agricultural blessings, their peace and prosperity among 
those who were once their enemies, all of that, we now know those were types and shadows. They originally did not know, so we have to go back and reinterpret. Stephen Sizer says, Jesus and the apostles reinterpreted the Old Testament. So Jesus and the apostles were revealing the intentions that were hidden before. Gary Burge says, For as we shall all see, and as commentators regularly show, while the land itself had a concrete application for most in Judaism, Jesus and his followers reinterpreted the promises that came to those in his kingdom. Physical land that was promised before it was interpreted normally, normatively, normal words, normative definitions, Yet it now has to be reinterpreted because God's intentions were hidden back then and now they're revealed. So Vlock sums up saying, my purpose in offering these quotations is not to claim that all non-dispensationalists use this terminology, but many have, and it is right to point this out. If others want to use interpret, transcend, fulfill, etc., that is okay. But let's be clear that several key non-dispensationalists use reinterpret to explain their view. Thus, it is a legitimate term to bring up in the discussion. Totally a legitimate term to bring up in the discussion. And so in another tweet, um, I retweeted myself. How's that for arrogant? But I, I retweeted the original tweet down here, Approaches to Understanding the Old Testament Prophets, that graphic, And I said, there are lots of covenant theologians saying that this isn't accurate, but what about the following evidences? And I link to the Mike Vlock article. I share pictures from people he didn't quote in books that I have on the shelf behind me. And I say, you know, hey, here here it is. Um, I've got Graham Goldsworthy on here, Sidney Gradanis, David Murray, Louis Burkhoff, using language that indicates stuff's being reinterpreted hidden intentions are being revealed later on down the road. And I, I say, um, I, I don't know why it's not showing up here. Maybe if I do this, um, nope, that's not it. You are witnessing Twitter ineptitude live. Well, kind of live. What if I do this? Why is this not? Uh, oh, there it is. Okay. So I, I, I added a tweet here saying, look, not all covenant theologians explain this the same way. I get that. But this implication, the hidden intentions implication, hovers over the entire systematic theology of covenant theology, and it is the basic divide between covenant theology and dispensationalism. All right? So, look, I recognize that uh, not, not all theologians, not all authors, not all just lay people who believe that the church is Israel and Israel is the church, not, not all these people are going to articulate it the same way. I mean, there's no one out there articulating it the way I summarized it, saying secret definitions. But they're all saying it in a different way. That's the point. That's that's the whole point of my post. That's the whole point of uh, what, what I was trying to bring out. And so, for example, um, let's go back to my interaction with Gabriel Hughes here with well, what? When he told me I was lying, I said, where's the lie, though? Help me out. And he said, can you point to a place where a covenant theologian believed the human authors of the Bible were wrong in their intention with the words they used? Very good question. He's saying, can you show me evidence that substantiates your graphic? And I said, okay, here we go. Here's Goldsworthy. So here's Graham Goldsworthy. Uh, Let's see. I've got to adjust this on the the video site again. Um, Maybe I won't be able to do that. Maybe I should just do this and I'll read it for you. 
Okay, Graham Goldsworthy says this. I'll start here kind of in the middle of the paragraph. He says, against the backdrop of the complexity of the history and prophetic expectations. So against the backdrop of the complexity of the history and prophetic expectations. So we could just kind of cut out that that first term that was a little, I don't know, doesn't make a lot of sense because we're jumping into the middle of a paragraph, but we can say it this way. Against the backdrop of the complexity of prophetic expectations, or just say against the backdrop of prophetic expectations. Okay, so we're talking about the expectations of the Old Testament prophets. Against the backdrop of that, Jesus proclaims himself to be the goal of all the purposes and promises of God, where the Old Testament describes the goal of God's work in terms of a remnant of the chosen people, the promised land, the temple, the Davidic prince, and a whole range of images and metaphors, the New Testament claims simply that the death and resurrection of Jesus fulfills them all. So you have the prophetic expectations of Old Testament prophets. And what were those? The land, the temple, the people, all of that. Well, the New Testament reveals that to be a metaphor because it says all of that is fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Are, are you catching that? So, so he would never say God had secret definitions, but that's exactly what he's saying, that God had secret definitions all along. So I'm, I'm not like, I don't think I, I'm really stretching anything here. That's what he's saying. I'm using different words because I'm summarizing it as someone who's not in that camp and criticizing it with that. Saying God had secret definitions. That's what not what he's saying, but that's exactly what he's saying. Well, um, not everyone took the approach of saying, that's not what covenant theologians say. There were some people who said, well, look, Ezekiel saw the shallow or, or lower fulfillment. Um, well, I guess not lower. Shallow fulfillment, surface fulfillment. Uh, so Ezekiel as an example, or you could use Isaiah or whoever. They saw the shallow fulfillment, but God had a deeper fulfillment that came later. God revealed a deeper meaning or a fuller meaning. If you're a real hermeneutics nerd, you'll know that there's a, a term out there called census plenier. And with census plenier, it, it means deeper meaning or fuller sense that over time, God reveals a deeper meaning behind words than the original recipients of those words understood. And so the this, that's a way to, again, criticize my diagram at the beginning and say, no, God's not using secret definitions. He just has a fuller sense that he reveals over time. Well, my question is, what does that deeper sense correspond to? I think that's a, a very fair question. What does the deeper sense that you say God had all along and that was progressively revealed, what does that correspond to? And so what you'll have are um, some people like Gabriel Hughes saying, well, the, uh, the shallow meaning refers to their restoration in the land, which happened after the Babylonian exile. So they came back from the Babylonian captivity. They came back from that. And they repossessed the land and they started to rebuild. If you read uh, Nehemiah, if you read, um, you know, Ezra, you can see they came back and they started to rebuild. 
And so there's a there's a sense in which Israel was regathered then. But ultimately, what God had in mind was this church that we're living in now, this multi-ethnic, multinational church. And so, sorry, I was while I was talking, I was trying to find this tweet. And here it is. This is Gabriel Hughes saying, basically, there was a shallow fulfillment and then a deeper second fulfillment. He says, some Old Testament passages about the regathering of Israel are about Israel coming back from exile, which already happened. Other passages are about the true Israel made up of Jew and Gentile, the gathering of God's people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And uh, I share here eight reasons why Israel's restoration was not fulfilled after the exile. This is made by Matthew Waymeyer, another great author that you should buy all of his stuff. Matthew Waymeyer gives eight biblical reasons as to why Israel could not be restored after the exile in fulfillment of certain passages. Now, they did come back to the land, some of them, and it was an amazing thing, but it wasn't the fulfillment of any passages. Um, So these eight reasons, I'll just read off a couple. He says, look, in the restoration, the ten tribes of the north are reunited with the two tribes of the south. But when they returned from the exile, this did not take place. In fact, there were some Israelites who refused to go back. Second point, he says, in the restoration, there will be a spiritual renewal, a wholehearted obedience to the Lord among the Israelites. But when they came back from the exile, the nation of Israel was still practicing many sins, such as intermarriage, non-prescribed offerings, withholding tithes, immoral priests, etc. Goes on to explain six other reasons as to why the restoration did not occur after the exile. And so... um, Gabriel Hughes here, he recognizes that you you can't do that with every passage, and that's why he says some passages are about the return from exile, which already already happened, but there are other passages that are about the true Israel made up of Jew and Gentile. Okay, and he doesn't give us any indication of which passages are referring to which, which would uh, be really helpful here, but that's just not what he gives us. And so um, I, I think it's helpful to ask those people for those things, but usually by that point, they get pretty grumpy. Well, there's another guy who uh, joined the conversation, and uh, his name is Alan Nelson the fourth, and uh, he says he actually wrote an article about this. He's agreeing with Gabriel Hughes and saying, yeah, look, there was a shallow fulfillment, but there's a deeper fulfillment going on too, and he says, I discussed that here. Okay, so I read the article, I print it out, I read the article, I go through it, and I say, okay, looks to me as though um, we, we still have some disagreements and I still have some questions. And one of the things he does in the article is he talks about how the Old Testament is like a, a, a dark room, uh, say a living room. And this is a very common illustration used by covenant theologians. The Old Testament is, used, or is uh, viewed as a dark room, and you have a bunch of furniture in there, but everything's dark. You can't sense where anything is. Well, then the light comes on, and this is the New Testament, and with the light of the New Testament, you can see where everything is and what it's all about. Now, it was there all along, but you weren't able to grab hold of it. You weren't able to recognize it. You weren't able to make sense of it because it was darkness. But now you have the light of the New Testament, and you can make sense of everything. So when I went through the article and I saw that he was using that illustration, I said, okay, what does this furniture correspond to, because it looks to me like it's corresponding to the true meaning of the text. And if that's the case, 
Doesn't that mean that the authors were in the dark regarding the true meaning of the text? They had one intention. God had another intention. See, we're, we're back to, the, to this issue. They had one intention, but God had another intention. And it wasn't until the New Testament came along that we discovered God's true intention that disagreed with the human author's intention. So I bring this up to them. There were some other things that were brought up here, but I bring that up and uh, I said, look, they were in the dark. What does that imply? And Andrew Boone jumps in. Uh, I believe he's dispensational. And he says, uh, look, does the furniture stand for the meaning of the text or does the furniture stand for the future realities communicated by the test, by, by the text? And the author of this article, Alan Nelson, says, the biblical writers understood more than what we often give them credit for, I think. What a glorious book we have, what a glorious God who wrote it. But Andrew Boone repeats, what does the furniture stand for in the analogy? Because that's very, very important. If you're going to use this illustration or understand this illustration, what does the furniture represent? Alan replies saying, don't overstretch the analogy, brother. We know what the scriptures mean from the totality of the scriptures. The Bible interprets the Bible. What's there has always been there. We affirm the grammatical historical method. We just don't stop with the human author. Andrew says, I just want to make sure I understand the analogy. I'm not sure what it means. Alan says, no worries, brother. I commend you to better authors, Louis Burkhoff, Benjamin Keach, yada, yada, yada. I say, do you not know the point of the illustration you used? Not trying to slam you here, but you posted your article multiple times. We've read it, and now you won't clarify a point for us. It seems strange. He says, it's literally in the article, LOL. Okay. Like saying LOL, like, Hey, you're stupid. It's in the article. Ha ha. I did. Look, I served, I served you here by printing out your article that you wanted me to read. I went through it. I made notes. The LOL, I think was a little unnecessary, but he says, meaning doesn't change. I'm wary of being stuck in the dispensational loop here, fellas. It doesn't seem you're reading the article. Well, oh, really? Andrew Boone's a lawyer. I've got a Bible college degree and I spend a lot of my time doing theology and hermeneutics. Between the two of us, we're not reading the article well? Okay. He says, you guys don't like the analogy. No sweat. I've posted for others to consider. It's basic 1689 hermeneutics. So Andrew says, so the furniture equals meaning of the text, question mark. Alan highlights a portion from his article where it says the furniture hasn't been moved or changed at all, but now we can see its arrangement because the light has been shed. The New Testament then sheds light on what was already there in the old. And I say, this doesn't say what the furniture is. <laughs> I understand that you're exhausted. That's a word he used in another tweet and probably angry, but we just want to know what the furniture is. Alan says, I'm not angry, brother. I keep going back and reading the article, LOL. I keep thinking maybe I wasn't clear. I don't think you read the article carefully. Okay. Then he shares a quote from Jeff Johnson an author, an amillennial guy, uh, he says, even though the New Testament does not reinterpret the original meaning of the Old Testament, it adds light and clarity. The sacrifices, the temple, the nation of Israel, and other such things are given their fullest and typological meaning in the New Testament. All right, so this is a really important point. Look at this quote if you're able to, if you're viewing this on YouTube or whatever. He says, the New Testament does not reinterpret the original meaning of the Old. So he's going in a different direction than George Ladd, Kim Riddlebarger, 
Steven Sizer, those guys we looked at earlier, he's going a different direction. He doesn't want to use the reinterpretation language, but he's saying, look, there's a fuller sense that gets revealed over time. And he says that the typological meaning of the sacrifices, the temple, the nation, that's revealed in the New Testament. And here's where I'm saying, yeah, you're saying something different, but you're not saying anything different at all. This is still reinterpretation language because what did the original audience think when God revealed to them about the future restoration in their land, the future temple, the the future peace and prosperity that they would have as a nation? What did Israel have in mind? They had in mind what those words meant in their language. God revealed normative words with normative definitions. But here, they're saying God had a secret definition of these words, or he had a hidden intention of these words, or if we want to make it a little more flowery, he had a deeper sense of these words, and it was later that they were brought to light. To me, it's the same thing. So Andrew Boone replies to that and says, I'm going to say the furniture is the meaning of the text based on that. And Alan says, it was there the whole time, smiley face. (laughs) Andrew says, well, in my opinion, it was a simple question, shrug emoji. (laughs) And Alan says, and in my opinion, a simple answer, smiley face. So here's the problem with uh, saying, okay, the, the New Testament doesn't reinterpret the Old Testament. What you have is a deeper sense that was hidden and then, well, they wouldn't say hidden, a deeper sense that was baked in there that you couldn't see because it was dark, hidden. I think that's that's what that means. But the, the light of the New Testament comes along and now you can see it. Now you can see the deeper sense. Well, that is still reinterpretation language because the shallow expectation that Ezekiel, we'll just use Ezekiel's example, the shallow expectation that Ezekiel had when it came to this future temple that he talks about in chapters 40 to 48, that is categorically opposed to the deeper sense. These are two radically different ideas. Ezekiel gets this vision from God. He gives a prophecy to the people of Israel saying, we're going to be back in the land. Here's how we should divide up the land among the 12 tribes of Israel. There's going to be a temple. There's going to be sacrifices. The sons of Zadok are going to be performing sacrifices in the temple. Here's what's going to happen. And then later we find out that the deeper sense is none of that at all. None of that is going to happen. The deeper sense is there's a multi-ethnic church and we all believe in Jesus and the prophecies of Ezekiel 40 to 48 are being metaphorically fulfilled now. So it's not that they disagree. It's not that Ezekiel had one intention and God had another. It's just that there was a deeper sense the whole time. No. In the covenant theology system, Ezekiel clearly had one intention. That's why he's using those words to his audience that they would understand. And God, in their system, clearly had another intention. That's the whole point of that original diagram I made. One intention from the divine author, another intention by the human author. They're categorically opposed. It would be similar to me saying to my daughter, as we're getting closer to Christmas, saying to my daughter, "Um, hey, sweetie, this Christmas, I'm going to get you a puppy. And then when Christmas rolls around, instead of giving my daughter a puppy, I give her a horse And I say, and also you got to share it with all the neighbors in the neighborhood. Now, 
what you would have some people saying is, well, your dad gave you a, a much better gift than you originally expected. He gave you something much, much better than you ever could have imagined. I mean, you get to have a horse, a, this big horse that you can ride instead of this little puppy that you have to potty train. You, you have this big horse that you get to go on adventures with and you get to know your neighbors better and, and have better relationships with your neighbors because you all get to share the horse. Okay, you can totally say that. But going back to what I said to my daughter, for Christmas, I will be giving you a puppy. I clearly either had secret definitions for those words or I was lying to her. Those are the only two options. Those are, those are literally the only two options for what you can do with that expectation I set and then went a different direction. And so the shallow view, the shallow versus deeper meaning view means that Ezekiel was wrong with his intention. That's really what it means at the end of the day. And, and Israel was wrong with their expectation. And that expectation came from God. But he gave them these words with definitions that they were not privy to. Now, on this side of the cross, the church in this age, we are now privy to the secret hidden intentions of God in those prophecies, and we see them spiritually fulfilled. Interesting. It's a very interesting conversation, and I think it's something that we need to talk about more, which is why I posted that original diagram. Well, one more thing I want to mention. I wanted this to be done in 25 minutes. Man, I, I blew past that. I'm sorry, but maybe this is entertaining for you or helpful. I don't know. Because if you're still listening at this point, I guess it's one of those things. <clears throat> well, um, a, a final uh, refutation or response to my original diagram about the two different intentions of the two authors, the divine author and the human author, a final response I would get was, actually, the human authors, we'll just continue to use Ezekiel, for example. Ezekiel knew exactly what God was doing. They would say, let me go back. Let me pull up my um, original diagram. Oh, wow. I got to wait for stuff to load. These were these were some pretty long threads. Um, all right, here we go. So my original diagram, where... I say on the covenant theology side of things, you've got divine author versus human author with some words, obviously not all words, but some words, Where on the whereas on the dispensational side of things, divine author and human author are in total harmony about the meaning of words. So there were some covenant theologians who actually responded to this and disagreed with this by saying, no, we believe that, again, Ezekiel as the example, Ezekiel knew exactly what God meant when he issued that prophecy about the temple and about the sacrifices by the sons of Zadok and about the land being divided up among the 12 tribes, Ezekiel did not view that as literal. He understood that as a type and shadow and as an allegory that pointed to the future reality of a multi-ethnic, multinational church where these things would all be happening in a spiritual sense. That's what some uh, covenant theologians have, have said to me in response to this, and I find that quite mind-boggling, actually. I, I am totally astounded by that. And this uh, guy who wrote the article, Alan, he starts going that direction. So before it kind of seemed like the, the shallow sense, deeper sense method was what he was taking. And then it almost, it's almost like he pivoted a little bit and was saying, actually, um, 
Ezekiel knew exactly what God was doing the whole time. And so uh, I'll show you these tweets where we kind of get to that point. I say, you know, we're, we're going back to the question I asked you earlier that you never responded to. Were those authors, Ezekiel, for example, in the dark regarding the true meaning of what they were writing? Alan says, I thought I did respond that the biblical authors understood much more than we give them credit for. It's always why they spoke in types and shadows. They understood those and that they were pointing to greater things. He's saying that Ezekiel understood that he was talking in types and shadows, that he wasn't speaking of a literal sacrifice. He wasn't speaking of literal land. He wasn't speaking of literal tribes. He knew it was all figurative. Now, he doesn't say that in his prophecy. Ezekiel doesn't say, and here's a picture. Here's a figurative picture. Here's an allegory I'm giving you. He doesn't say that. He just tells Israel, this is the vision I got. This is what's going to happen. There will be a new temple. It's going to look like this. We'll all be back in the land. We're going to divide the land. It's going to look like that. He never says it's figurative, but Alan says he knew it was figurative. He just didn't disclose that to the rest of the nation, apparently. And so I made another graphic on paint, and I said, so perhaps this is uh, rudimentary, but it seems that in answering this question from a covenant theology perspective, you'd go with a yes below. And here's this uh, amazing flow chart that I made on paint, where my question to the covenant theologian is this, did the Old Testament prophets intend exactly what God intended when they spoke of a future restoration of Israel? Did the Old Testament prophets, the human authors, intend exactly what God intended when they spoke of a future restoration of Israel? If they say no, then it's like, okay, well, there must be a distinction between the intended meanings of the divine author and the human author, and my original diagram is correct. If you say yes, that they did intend exactly what God intended, there was no break in the intended meaning of words at all. They had the, the same intention with the meaning of the words of the prophecy. Then my follow-up question is, why then did they use language that would mislead Israel, setting up false expectations? Because that's exactly what happened, isn't it? <laughs> you have Israel, this nation, awaiting their king who is going to come and rule. Uh who was going to restore Israel, who was going to fulfill the prophecies that they have about the coming king? Why would they use that language to their fellow countrymen if they knew all along that God wasn't going to actually do that? That's the question. That, that's, I believe, a, a critical question, a very, very important question. And so you would think he would respond with an answer, but instead he says, Oh boy, brother, there are several problems here, even in your own system. False expectations? Question mark. So you're saying your system is good because in the last 2,000 years of Jewish persecution, at least they've had expectations? I don't even know what that question is. I don't even know what he's talking about. And he says, The completion of God's promises are better, all caps, better. It doesn't matter what the meaning of words are. What matters is that he gave us something better. What matters is that the horse is better than the puppy. Who cares about the definitions of I will give you, defining who you is, a puppy, defining what a puppy is. The whole neighborhood got a horse. So who cares? That's his argument. He goes on to say, God's promises have a greater fulfillment in Christ and his church. A physical expectation is not expectation enough. Glorious things are spoken of the church. See the church more beautifully, friend, he says. Okay, 
Wow. That's a very interesting way of ending this conversation, isn't it? The And, and here's, I, I think, what these guys are missing. Well, there are many things I think they're missing. Here's another thing I think they're missing. Maybe I should phrase it that way. Jesus held people accountable to reading the Old Testament and understanding what the Old Testament said. Think of in the Gospels, like at the end of Luke, when he would say, have you not read what's in the law, the prophets, and the, and the Psalms? Have you not read what, what, what's said about the Messiah? Have you not read to the rich man who was in Hades, who says, have Lazarus go back and tell my brothers. Abraham reminds him, look, they've got Moses. They've got Moses and the prophets. If your brothers won't pay attention to Moses and the prophets, they won't pay attention if a man rises from the dead. So the whole point of God giving revelation with normal words and normative language with normal definitions is that people would pay attention to those words and understand them. They, they had no way Ezekiel's original audience had no way to grasp any kind of allegorical hidden, deeper, fuller sense. They had no way. How could God hold them accountable to believing what he said when he didn't give them the fuller sense? He couldn't have. And you see these expectations that Israel had based on the normal reading of plain language. You see these expectations not only carried into the Gospels, not only carried by the disciples in the Gospels, not only carried by the disciples in the Gospels through the death of Jesus, but through the resurrection, where it says in Acts chapter 1, after Jesus in his resurrected glorified state, you know, I mean, if there was, it, it, it's just amazing, glorified, resurrected. He was teaching them for 40 days about the kingdom of God. If there was ever any doubt if the, that the disciples knew anything, I think that would have to be erased at this point. Anything about the meaning of words. I'm not saying they became omniscient. Okay, that's not what I meant. But if there was any doubt that the disciples knew what Jesus's plans and purposes were for Israel, that would have to be erased here, where he's teaching them for 40 days in his resurrected state about the kingdom. And before he ascends, Peter asks him in Acts 1.6, is now the time that you will restore the kingdom to Israel? Peter asks him that question. And Jesus doesn't say, oh, Peter, you are such an idiot. 40 days I've been teaching you about this and you don't get it. He didn't say that at all. He said, it's not for you to know the time. It's not for you to know that. I got to go. See ya. And then what you find later is Peter gets filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 3, we find him preaching again. And in Acts chapter 3, he tells the Jews, believe on your Messiah Jesus that the times of refreshing may come and all that was predicted by the prophets would come to pass. If Peter had the hermeneutic of covenant theology, he would say that it's already come to pass because by that point, Jesus had died. He had risen again and the church had been started. If he believed that there was this deeper sense that was already allegorically fulfilled in Jesus or it's being allegorically fulfilled in the church, he would not have said what he said in Acts chapter 3. But in Acts chapter 3, he says, Repent, Israel, that the times of refreshing may come to you and that all that the prophets predicted about you will come to pass. 
because they will not be restored in their land without believing in Jesus. They will not receive all the promised blessings without being joined to their Messiah. And that's the way Jesus was pre- or that's the way uh, Peter was preaching to them. All right, so really important stuff. Forty-five minutes. Sorry, I took so long, but hopefully that was helpful. Just uh, we jumped right in, got into a discussion about hermeneutics that I think has far-reaching implications, and uh, we would all do well to marinate on that more. Okay, thanks for listening. If you've got any questions, let us know. Show at dotheology.com or, or comments. It doesn't have to be just questions. It could be snarky, snarky remarks. Show, S-H-O-W at dotheology.com. Let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, God bless.